Good morning from Washington, D.C. I'm Paul Kincaid, Director of Congressional Outreach for FMC, the Association of Former Members of Congress. I'd like to welcome all of you to today's virtual roundtable. For those of you who have missed our previous episodes, I'd invite you to visit our archives at www.usafmc.org sounds to check out our other programs and to subscribe to Virtual Roundtable as a podcast, either on Spotify or Apple. This is an interactive discussion today, so if you have any questions at any time, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen, fill out your name and your question, and if we choose you, our moderator will call on you to ask your question over audio only to our panel. Again, anytime during the call, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom center of your Zoom screen. Today, we're exactly 12 days from the 2020 presidential election. The news media is discussing laptops, debates, bunkers, donations, and dozens of other horse race related issues that they believe will drive voters in our general election. It's very likely they're correct. While America debates those issues, however, much of the world, including our nation and our continent, have differing concerns. In a recent poll of more than 150,000 people across 142 countries, including the United States, nearly 70% said that climate change was a very or somewhat serious threat to their nation. For many scientists who study anthropogenic climate change, this poll is a trailing indicator. Many believe damage to the Earth's atmosphere is such that repair is not a possibility. Instead, only creating resilience is possible. Climate resilience is the idea that the infrastructure of business, government, and residences can absorb and be hardened against sea level rise, flooding, extraordinarily violent weather events, and other impacts of global climate shifts. In fact, in 2018, according to a nonprofit survey, 215 of the world's top 500 businesses estimated climate risks that totaled more than $1 trillion, but also reported more than $7 trillion of benefits that could be gained through climate resilience growth. So today we have a wonderful panel to talk about what global climate changes mean to businesses in the United States and all over the world, how government can help lower the impact of climate change through resilience, regulation, and incentivization, and the responsibility of corporations to adapt to the coming climate crisis. Congressman Ted Deutsch will be joining us soon from my home state of Florida, where king tides along the eastern seaboard have flooded his home district more than ever before. Congressman Deutsch has represented the Palm Beaches and Broward County since 2010, and is House Co-Chair of the Congressional Study Group on Germany. Roger Libby is Executive Vice President for DHL Corporate Public Policy. DHL has been a proud member of the Congressional Study Group's Business Advisory Council and a wonderful supporter of FMC programming. They've also set a goal through their Go Green program of zero emissions in their businesses by 2050. Finally, our moderator today is Jason Bordoff, the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Prior to his work at Columbia, Professor Bordoff served as special assistant to the president and senior director for energy and climate change on the staff of the National Security Council. Prior to that, he'd held senior policy positions on the White House's National Economic Council and the Council on Environmental Quality. Under Professor Bordoff's able tutelage, we hope for a great discussion today, taking a step away from the toxic political culture in our nation and discussing how we can detoxify our entire planet at once. Professor Bordoff, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, well, thanks so much to, uh, to FMC for this invitation to be here with Congressman Deutsch and, uh, and Roger Libby. Um, as you said, uh, Congressman Deutsch will be joining in a minute. Roger, good to see you and thanks for, for making time. Uh, I think it's a really timely and important topic to be talking about. Um, obviously things will look different, I suspect, in Washington DC, depending on the outcome of, of the election, but they're, um, not just in the White House, but in Congress, but there may well be a chance for significant action on Capitol Hill um, on the topic of climate change, both uh, legislation, uh, in, in whether it's in the form of standards or carbon price, 
as well as some investments in green recovery uh, as part of potentially a larger stimulus package. So I would be really interested in the topic of this conversation, which is how to think about incentives versus regulation, and also how to think uh, about the role of the private sector, which you know seems to come out with announcements almost uh, every day and targets. And be really helpful, Roger, to hear your thoughts uh, on, on on which one of those, which ones are more meaningful, how DHL uh, is approaching this. But I see we have Congressman Deutsch uh, joining now. Good to see you again, Congressman. Uh, Chair, uh, of the likewise, House Climate Solutions uh, Caucus. <clears throat> and so I'm going to start with just. Uh, asking you to comment uh, first Congressman Deutsch and then Roger, just kind of broadly on the topic uh, of this session, which is how to, and I just uh, the, the framing I was giving a, a moment ago, Congressman was, you know, if we have an opportunity in Washington to think more ambitiously about action on climate, um, there are different views about the role that standards and regulation should play, that, uh, that, that, that a carbon price might play, uh, and that government spending might play, and how to, that all of that connects with corporate action and corporate responsibility. And it would just be helpful as a broad framing to hear your thoughts uh, on how you think about where the focus should be and what is most important in order to drive changes in corporate, uh, corporate investment patterns and corporate action. Uh, sure. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. Let me actually try this. There we go. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be with you. And um, it is actually nice to talk, spend a few minutes talking about um, policy in a, in a nonpartisan setting where um, uh, we might actually help, uh, I hope, try to set the stage for, for what comes next. I, I don't, I would, um, uh, Jason, I would just say that there's not there's there's no question here about whether we need to do something and um, and what uh, whether this is uh, a topic that may be addressed in the next administration. Uh, look, I'm uh, I'm a strong supporter of Vice President Biden, uh, and we'll talk about what can happen there in the uh, in the chance that there is a second Trump term. I, there's there's just there's no um, there's no way that we can continue to ignore the challenges of climate change. And it, it touches literally all aspects of our, uh, of our country, every part of our economy. And so I, I think to your question, look, um, at the start, everything's going to be on the table. Uh, there is, I can tell you as, as the chairman of the Climate Solutions Caucus, where we've worked hard to bring together uh, Democrats and Republicans to talk about these issues and, um, and in, a, in a significant way to try to highlight the, both the impact that climate change is having on the business community, on international security, on, on refugees, on uh, I, I, uh, the, every, every part of, of our economy. Um, we also talk about ways to address it and uh, there, there will be those um, I think right off the top, and I, I think this is right, right off the top, you need to look at what's been done over the past four years to set us back um, and the way that, that the Trump administration has rolled back regulations, significant regulations that, um, uh, that make it harder for us to do what's, what's necessary. Uh, that's short term is, is uh, an evaluation of those. I, I also think just in terms of carbon fees, regulations, uh, research and development, all of that will be on the table as well. 
our carbon fee bill, which I know we might chat a little more about, um, it, there, there is anything we do is going to have to be bipartisan. And so the balance between a very serious effort to put a price on carbon for certainty that that provides corporate America uh, and the energy industry and changes behavior uh, and what that does to, to regulations and whether there are pieces that get rolled back and if so, for how long, uh, that's all gonna be part of the conversation. And then the last piece is research and development. We have to be a, a leader in R&D if we're <coughs> going to not just combat climate change, but do it in a way that, that contributes to economic growth in, in America as well. Yeah, that's a great overview. And, and we just released, I don't know if you saw, we just released at the Center on Global Energy Policy, a roadmap for kind of going big on a national energy innovation mission that hopefully can provide some guidance on how to do that. Just a quick follow-up and then I'll come to Roger. You're, you started with the urgency of the challenge. And I'm just wondering, sitting where you are in a state particularly vulnerable to climate impacts, uh, I'm struck by the extent to which things like the recent California wildfires have been written about in journalism and media with a much stronger link to climate change than may have been the case in the past. Do you see broad recognition with your constituents about connections between climate and the kind of things they're seeing day to day? Well, I, I think you see it all across the country. You mentioned the fires in California. You can then just come east um, through Colorado. You get to Iowa and, and that, uh, that horrific storm that, that ripped through Iowa. And, and you come to Florida, um, this is, this is not a new realization in Florida for my constituents. Florida has been dealing with the effect of sea level rise in particular, especially this time of year when we have king tides and sunny day flooding. Um, everyone understands the economic cost, uh, both, both short term and what it will mean longer term when, uh, when banks stop making loans, uh, you can't get a mortgage. It's gonna impact our real estate economy. If we don't act, it's gonna impact our tourism economy. Um, the, ins the insurance market uh, is going to make is going to be uh, is going to cost price people out of um, certain neighborhoods. So we know that that's the case here. And just the last thing I'll say about this, it's the reason that in South Florida, especially, this is not a partisan issue. The local governments, the compact that was formed among all of the South Florida counties, um, wasn't done on a partisan basis. We have Democrat and Republican mayors, county commissioners, um, local officials, all of whom understand uh, why it's urgent for us to act. That's great. Uh, thank you. Uh, Roger, thanks for being with us. I mean, DHL is a really important issue. It's the largest logistics company globally, has set ambitious goals on climate protection, including uh, net zero emissions by, by 2050. A lot of different pathways you can get there. I suspect I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by the art over your shoulder. That's one of the ways, but probably it's not going to work everywhere, uh, including including uh, global shipping and aviation. Um, but can you talk about what it will take to get there um, and including the role of policy? So thank you very much. Uh, first of all, thank you, Paul and FMC for hosting this. Thank you, Professor Bordoff for moderating this panel. And thank you, Congressman Deutsch. It's great to see you again. Um, yeah. Actually, see you. It would be great to see you in person, but uh, I also took this opportunity to have the first time wear a tie in several months. So uh, just try to amp it up. Uh, from from the DHL perspective, and Deutsche Post DHL is in fact uh, in 220 countries and territories with over 550,000 employees. Um, we're uniquely positioned, uh, really, to help on sustainable development goals of the UN and the climate protection across 
uh, a series of borders around the world. And we take that responsibility very seriously. In fact, our, our mission, our corporate mission is connecting people and improving lives. So uh, on the flip side, we also operate a lot of transportation vehicles. And we acknowledge that 14% roughly of, of greenhouse gas emissions are from the transportation sector. So we take I both have the opportunity and the responsibility to act, which is why we've taken these steps. Really, DHL looked at this going back as early as 2008. We made the first commitment. We were the first logistics company to make a voluntary commitment of carbon efficiency. We had a target of 30% carbon efficiency improvement compared to 2007 by the year 2020, this year. But we hit that in 2016. And so we had the opportunity at that point to say, either we just slowly ratchet that up and over time we'll make uh, moderate improvements. But instead, that is exactly as you mentioned, we set the marker out there. We were the first company to set a net zero emissions in the logistics industry, net zero emissions target. Um, but as you point out, it's not an easy step. It is a corporation. It's gonna require uh, a lot of different tools. It's gonna require a lot of different partnerships with governments private sector, uh, our own uh, commercial partners. But it also required us to, to set interim targets so that we don't just wait until 2049 and go, now what can we do? And so we imposed our own, again, voluntary targets by 2025 to get to 50% carbon efficiency compared to our 2007 levels. And we're on our way, we're already at 35%, but we're still working at that. Uh, we want to operate 70% of our last mile service with uh, zero emissions vehicles. And, and this is one, uh, this is in South Florida, so I figured the Congressman might appreciate that. Uh, but looking at electric vehicles, uh, which today account for about 13% of our vehicles across the globe, um, 12,000 EVs are specifically in Europe. We started rolling out EVs as various types. Uh, Manhattan was the first city that went all uh, electric or hybrid. And now we're starting with the cargo, electric cargo bikes, really trying to test out these other uh, delivery methods. Um, we also want to certify 80% of our uh, employees as Go Green specialists. And the Go Green, uh, we have a Go Help, Go Teach, and Go Green. This, uh, and we just launched Go Trade. These are using our core competency to try to do the right thing in our corporate social responsibility. And uh, we want to make sure that our employees are trained. They're not just reading about it on a piece of paper, but they're trained to be specialists on both what the risks are as what we can do about it. Uh, and lastly, we partner with other organizations on initiatives such as planting 1 million trees every year. Uh, and we planted already 250,000 trees in Michigan this year. We'll, we'll definitely hit our 1 million tree targets. But all that together uh, puts the motivation behind what we want to do. And then the question is, you know, how are we going to do it? And I think it's gonna be a combination uh, and the Congressman rightly brought up, you know, you can look at fees, you can look at regulations, you can look at R&D. Uh, but I think that from a corporation's perspective, it's really helpful in understanding that we use the right tool for the right uh, developmental phase. Certain products uh, like compact fluorescent light bulbs, you know, they're diffused into the market. You can buy it today. So if you impose a regulation, people will change. Other things like alternative aviation fuels, they're still, they've moved out of basic R&D, but you're still in, really in the demonstration to commercialization phase. We don't have that in the market today. So how do we use either subsidies in that case? And, and the, 
the specific models will depend, but we look forward to working with the congressman and others on, on structuring the type of programs that help each mode and each uh, type of product in its developmental phase take that next leap forward. Thank you. And uh, just a quick follow-up, and uh, maybe I'd love the congressman's view on it too. Um, you talked about the different policy choices depending on where the technologies stand, sending a price signal versus a mandate. I mean, again, CFL, Compact Fluorescent Light Bulb is a good example. We, we didn't put a carbon price in place and assume that people pay attention to their electricity bills and are willing to pay more for a more expensive light bulb because it'll save them money over time. We just said, this is this is what you have to buy. This is all that's on the market. That's kind of the approach Governor Newsom has said California is going to take toward electric vehicles uh, in the not too distant future. So. Um, I'm curious what you think is going to be needed to move the needle in transportation. The congressman knows there's um, some criticism sometimes that a carbon tax, you know, can be very effective. It's going to do a lot in the power sector, but it's not going to have enough impact in transportation, um, given how responsive people are to changes in fuel price. What, what do you think policy needs to do to drive changes in how we, in how we decarbonize transportation uh, across the board, whether it's cars or the kind of trucks that DHL is using? Well, first of all, I will leave it to the congressman to answer any questions about what's politically palatable, whether it's <laughs> carbon tax or cap and trade systems or any variants thereof. Um, from a, from a, a corporation perspective, again, the whole point of putting a price on, a price on carbon is to incentivize a, uh, a, a, a person or a company to take advantage of the, the market efficiencies and, and make a change. That only works if they have the ability to make that change. So, for example, in the case of alternative aviation fuels, well, I can't, as an air carrier, go and buy an algo biofuel today. It exists. They've done some a handful of demonstration flights, but that's an area where a, a, a price on that won't change behavior because we don't have the ability to change behavior. But if you look at something like um, electric vehicles, uh, in particular, the focus so far has been on the tax incentives, been really been focused a lot more on passenger vehicles. And we think if we're really helping the transportation sector, the opportunity now is try to help commercial fleets move into uh, the tax incentives. And so if you incentivize behavior uh, by offering a tax incentive on a, a commercial electric vehicle, in this case, a light duty vehicle, that's a way where you can incentivize that change. You don't have to put a price on it, but you're incentivizing the behavior because they've got natural hurdles already. The, the price of an electric vehicle is, you know, in a, a, pickup, a pickup and delivery vehicle could be $20,000 or more, more expensive as an electric ver drive version versus a regular uh, traditional uh, combustion engine. So you've got challenges with price. You've got availability. They're not in the market sufficiently today. You have, uh, if you wanna bring one in from internationally, you're gonna to have to get it approved to operate on the roads in the United States. That's a government action. Plus you have to deal with the tariffs coming in. Uh, and then even some states which have been looking at incentives in that area, it's, uh, they're looking at scrappage rules. We have to get rid of an older vehicle, which sounds nice until you look at a company like DHL where uh, if we look at having to get rid of a 2009 or older diesel truck in order to get a tax incentive. Well, we don't have 2009 or older diesel trucks. We're, we have a more modern fleet to begin with, 
and we're not relying on diesel. So if you put in scrappage, sometimes it disincentivizes people from making change. Um, but the carbon price only works if it's on the market today, if I can make the decision to choose and you want to drive that behavior, like uh, low carbon fuel standards. Congressman, you, I'm curious your, your thoughts about that. I mean, you, you, you've, you've uh, been a leader on carbon price, uh, on a carbon tax bill. And, and at the same time, I think it starts around $25 and should be around 25 cents at the gas pump. So that might not meaningfully change uh, sudden shifts toward more fuel efficient cars or electric, uh, electric vehicles. How do you think about the role they play and whether complementary policies are needed and what kind might be needed? Uh, well, I, um, I would agree with Roger's assessment of, uh, of what needs to, how we need to look at this as we're trying to shift our, uh, our fleet. And that's true for businesses as well as, as for individuals and for families. Um, there, we need to, we need to continue to encourage, uh, customers, whoever those customers are to shift to electric. And there are a range of ways to do that. Uh, but at the same time that we're doing that, we've, uh, all, all with the goal, as Roger points out, of removing, uh, right now, of removing older gas vehicles from the road if they're not that old, and, they, and we set the standard at, at, at a place where it doesn't, it's, it's not sufficient to want to, uh, or to encourage that, that change, um, then we need to look at what else might need to be done uh, so that we can accomplish that. Uh, but as we're developing, just one other word on, on uh, that shift, as we're, as we're developing the, and expanding the use of, of electric vehicles, um, we have to continue to focus on, on batteries. Uh, and we need, I, we need better infrastructure around the country, uh, better charging infrastructure around the country for certainly for consumers, I think, to really feel uh, comfortable with, uh, with the transition. And that's, I would suggest, not that hard uh, if we make the commitment to do it. As for Chair, when you say we make the commitment, just a charging infrastructure, is that is that something the government needs to build, or is that something you think the private sector will and should build? I, I actually I actually think that that um, initially um, I think there's, there's there's a role for both initially, but um, but eventually it's a private it's a private sector. It, it, it's got to be driven by the private sector, and if um, if if the rest of what we're talking about doing in in moving to electric vehicles is successful, then obviously then it works from a business perspective as well. So, um, as to as as to your your question about um, uh, by the way, short term, I know we talked about this briefly, but uh, one of the one of the things that I think everyone now acknowledges is that as we're we're looking at rebuilding our infrastructure. Uh, we need to do that with an eye toward uh, a green economy and addressing climate change. And, and certainly this, this specific issue um, of availability of, of electricity for electric vehicles is going to be part of that, that conversation. Uh, it, in terms of how to do it, um, you're right that the, I, I want to go back for a second, first word if I can, and then I'm happy please, to please. get into, into, I just want to go back because we, we heard Roger talked about um, how, Roger, you talked about how your company looks at it. I, I think as important as it is for us to talk about social responsibility, um, I, there, 
the, the goal has to be to have um, businesses not just monitor their carbon emissions, but, um, but when monitoring that, because this gets to, to our legislation, uh, having business account for carbon emissions throughout the production, throughout the entire production process, um, upstream emissions, um, uh, and, then, and then the use and disposal of the product. I think all of that has to be monitored. It can't just, and you, I think you're, you provide an example of the thoughtful way to go through this. It's more than just simply saying, we're going to reduce emissions because I, I think that the conversation isn't as broad as it needs to be. Doesn't look at doesn't look at doesn't look upstream as well. Doesn't look at at extraction and refining, um, and making sure that businesses are fully aware of the amount of carbon emissions through the entire cycle um, of whatever product it is that you deliver, even if it is the product of delivering products. Uh, that enables businesses, I think, to uh, to more accurately plan and and for us to I think more accurately define what sustainability looks like. Um, and then it's going to require some, some greater transparency uh, in reporting those carbon emissions, uh, all with the goal, I think, of assisting uh, government officials and the public in moving forward on policies that, that can reduce emissions. The point is, we, it's, we, can, we can sit around and, and debate uh, a carbon fee, cap and trade, regulations, lots of different ways to approach this. If we don't have an accurate uh, accounting of, of what, what companies are doing, then it's really hard for us to gauge how successful we're being. So um, I just, I think that, that part of the conversation, that part of the equation, I think is not uh, front and center as often uh, and as significantly as it needs to be. And then in terms, just really quickly uh, on uh, carbon fee, um, I, the carbon fee, I believe provides businesses, and I'd love to hear Roger's thoughts on this, Professor Anna, you've, you've, um, think you've thought about and written about this a lot, uh, but carbon fee provides businesses with certainty and the ability to plan for the future. It is obviously less complicated than cap and trade. Um, when you put a price on carbon, um, it, it allows us moving forward to, to track the change in behavior and the price on carbon. Uh, from the price on carbon, we get to in our legislation where 100% of that fee is rebated to the American people, to consumers, um, we get to see the, the impact that that has as well in offsetting, not just offsetting their increased utility costs, but for most, it will actually mean additional funds going back to people, which in, in the time of this pandemic, I think is something else that uh, needs to be a part of this conversation. Um, so I, I can, as you know, Professor if I can go into much, much greater detail on the bill, but I think that's how we need to think about this. Well, just let me ask you a quick follow-up and then I'll come to Roger. Sure. Just help us understand where, where the bill stands. I mean, it, it, in the sense that, uh, you know, your Republicans you've worked with, uh, like Congressman Crabello, who's no longer there, and Congressman Rubin, yeah. who's, who's retiring. And on the Democratic side of the aisle, it does seem like a carbon tax is sort of viewed as maybe a nice to have now, but it's not the focus. Uh, for many, I think, who are talking about regulation and standards and spending. Um, so what are, what are the prospects for thinking about a carbon tax or carbon price bill? Uh, I, right. So um, you are right to point out that, um, that the Republicans who get too close to me wind up leaving Congress. <laughs> I've, I've recognized that. Uh, um, 
But we do have over 80 co-sponsors from certainly all parts of the Democratic caucus. Um, in a, in a, if there's a Biden administration uh, and a Democratic Congress, obviously there's going to be a lot of push and pull on, on climate uh, like there will be on lots of issues. Everyone's got ideas on what we need to do, how, how fast, how far we need to go, how quickly we need to get there. Um, on this one, climate, a, a carbon fee is not, I think, as you put it, a nice thing to have. Um, it is. <laughs> I was characterized. Uh, it's not, it, I've written, that's not my view, as you know, right. because I've written about this, but I'm hearing it described that way more from some in the environmental movement. Right. No, no, no. And I understand, and I've, I've had conversations with lots of my colleagues about what we do going forward. And, and if we're in a democratic majority, well, then why do we need the regulatory moratorium and why, and, and the, the numbers should be higher. And I, the, the, look, it all boils down to, for me, uh, the fundamental question of what can we do uh, immediately that will have the greatest impact on, on combating climate change. And, and the one thing that we can't do is afford to spend the entirety of a two-year uh, term of the House uh, and then heading into another round of elections debating how far we think we might be able to go because that just sets us up for, um, for doing nothing. And so I, I make the argument, I have made the argument to, to my colleagues, my friends, that uh, that if we can do something that that we can get broader buy-in on, that we know will change behavior, that we know um, will reduce carbon emissions dramatically, then we need to do it. Uh, it can be a part of whatever else we're doing. Uh, I, I actually think it makes sense doing it in pieces like this so that we can accomplish what, whatever is possible we can do in, in chunks. Um, but I, I think ultimately we need something that we're going to be able to pass, uh, that's going to be able to pass through the Senate, and and that will stand up over time. And this seems like, I'm not saying this is easy. I do think it's it's bold to, to, to move forward on a climate, uh, on a carbon fee. Um, it is bold. I know whatever uh, other people are talking about. But let's, let's remember where we were two years ago, four years ago, the fact that this is now something that people are brushing aside as nice to have. Um, <laughs> I think it really um, says more about the rest of the conversation. We need to do something that will really help. I believe this will do it, which is why uh, I intend to move forward with this again in the new Congress. Roger, I'd love for you to react to what the Congressman said and, and including, he, he's mentioned a couple of times, the you know elections again in two years, the predictability this would give companies. And as we move to a place where you hear on the left talk of, well, eliminating the filibuster, using reconciliation. I mean, just this world where companies may have to respond to wild policy swings uh, every two, four, six years, depending on how we move forward, if there's not consensus across the aisle. How do you plan for that? Uh, well, thank you. First of all, <laughs> Congressman rightly raised, but he raised about a dozen items that every single one of them I would love to talk about. But I will start by saying, first of all, he's absolutely correct. You need to be I looking get at myself some coffee, Roger. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the whole life cycle, you can't just look at one, uh, you know, the emission at this point. Uh, when you're talking about delivery of a product, we don't just move. We don't just talk about the carbon emissions off that truck delivery. We talk about 
from pickup and warehousing and transport and delivery. You have to look at the whole cycle. Second of all, the, the need to have a, a standard that you're able to measure that by. We have, the, we have a, a, a whole program internally within DHL where it's about our first choice program on how to measure everything that we do and then try to improve the efficiencies on that, whether it's just timing or everything else. Um, and in the case of, of greenhouse gas emissions, we're looking at ISO standards on environment 14,001 or uh, in energy 50,001. You know, th those are uniform framework standards that you can use to then measure what's going on. Um, and, uh, and I absolutely want to uh, state that his comment about charging infrastructure is also important. It's not just something that the government is going to do on behalf of the private sector. That does not mean that there aren't opportunities now to help get the private sector to do more. Uh, and California is a good example where you not only have the tax incentives to buy the green vehicle, but the, um, the state utilities actually have incentives for you to build charging infrastructure, which we've taken advantage of. And we've started now, uh, every new facility for DHL has electric charging facilities in that, in that building, whether or not we already have the electric vehicles, because we know we're going to go there. Um, but on the, on the big topic of pricing, I mean, let me start by saying they both, a carbon tax and a cap and trade system and other measures, when they put a price on carbon, they each have their advantages and disadvantages. Um, a carbon tax is a much simpler tool, both from a uh, administration standpoint and from a measurable standpoint. Okay, fine. It's, a, it's an X percent. Um, that provides certainty for cost of compliance. However, um, uh, there are two challenges. One is that a tax becomes more difficult to maintain politically when there are tough economic times. And I think of the gas tax uh, that we have today. The gas tax is something that businesses have accepted. Um, the US Chamber of Commerce has even supported uh, raising the gas tax to deal with our infrastructure needs. Uh, and yet, whenever we have um, a challenge with uh, the economic crisis, somebody wants to you know, waive the gas tax for some period of time because that will somehow help constituents. All it does is put the the highway infrastructure at a huge disadvantage for that period. And so we'd be concerned if there'd be this pressure to waive the carbon tax for some periods of time. The second part of it is, and this is the big caveat, if you're going to tax one industry, let's say it's on transportation fuels, you're taking money out of that industry. The question is, what are you gonna do with that money? If the money just goes into the overall system uh, of the federal budget and is spent for other things, uh, you've essentially taken money from one industry and given it to another, and I don't have any ability to make that shift as a company. So what we would say is if you're going to do a carbon tax, the revenues from that tax should go back into helping that industry make shift. So it could be, you know, taxing aviation fuels and then putting that into investments in R&D or commercialization of alternative algal biofuels, something like that, where you're keeping those revenues in there. Uh, on a cap and trade system, it is more complex, it is more bureaucratic, uh, but theoretically it allows the market forces to determine the cost of reaching zero, uh, zero emissions goal. And so we have more flexibility um, in terms of borrowing and banking allocations, uh, making planning decisions, and that flexibility uh, is very helpful, particularly on a multi-year basis. Um, but the right. one risk there that we've seen in Europe is if the, if the prices go down, for that allocated uh, carbon, 
well, then I have no incentive to buy, no incentive to, to make change. I'll just pay it small. Um, so I think there needs to be that in the increased flexibility in certain sectors, aviation being one of them, some surface transportation, where they don't have the option to switch. I, I would leave you with a, a third option. Here's a third way, um, which DHL has been working with the Transportation Climate Initiative, uh, which is a compact of a dozen Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states, including the DC, that looks at what they're calling cap and invest. And they're using the, uh, the, the cap component of that on carbon emissions from the transportation sector and any revenues collected off the sale of those um, uh, allocations are then used to reinvest in transportation infrastructure that offsets that. So it, it finds a balance where you have the flexibility of a cap and trade system, but it's investing the funds in that sector similar to the benefits you could get from a tax. So there are, there are other ways, I would say DHL, we have actually um, publicly stated that we would uh, accept a cap and trade system. Um, we've supported this uh, early stage cap and invest. Uh, and so I think we understand the value putting a price on carbon, but you need to build in both certainty, which is nice, but also flexibility because the market can change overnight as it has this year. Uh, <clears throat> great, so just a quick reminder to everyone in the audience, if you have questions you'd like to ask our panel, please click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen to ask your question. Um, while they're doing that, just uh, Roger, a 30 second follow-up. Do, do you have a sense of, does DHL have a sense of which technologies will actually win? I, I think probably for local delivery vehicles, you talked about electrification for aviation, we don't know. What about something like heavy duty freight where there's questions about whether it's electric or hydrogen or something else? Um, so I hate to be uh, the difficult one, adding more complexity to the problem, but it all depends. Uh, and you hinted at that in your question and how you framed the question. Um, the efficiencies that we've seen so far have been on ocean and on surface transportation, electrification of the light, uh, light vehicles for pickup and delivery. But when you start talking about medium and heavy duty vehicles, particularly long haul trucking, um, at this point in time, the battery technology and the charging infrastructure is not there to really accommodate long haul trucking in the same way. So we've been very supportive of looking at other sustainable fuels and what alternative fuels can you have that allows for that long haul trucking component. That's the same type of uh, investments that you're gonna um, get from a, uh, an alternative aviation fuels. Th the difference between surface transport and aviation is that avi aviation has to be done at elevation at different temperatures. And if it stops running, there's a much bigger impact than if the truck stops driving. Uh, so we have obviously very high safety standards of what we're gonna put into an, a, an aviation environment. But I think that uh, infrastructure, we're really looking at sustainable fuels, alternative fuels, charging of electric vehicles, uh, and then also just how do we gain efficiencies? The number one thing you can do is have fewer road miles. Uh, and this, if you can have a more efficient routing system, you can manage someone's supply chain. Uh, you can actually help uh, improve the efficiency that way. Uh, and yes, there are some alternative modes, some modal shift that can be used, but it really depends on whether or not 
you're under a time press because if it's a the new Apple iPhone gets coming out and DHL was honored to to move at least the last iteration of the iPhone. I don't know what when the next one will be, but uh, when we're moving all those iPhones in, those are physically small product, but they're worth a lot and the time uh, requirements are essential. So you couldn't put that in an ocean environment, whereas in other cases you can. So you can you can balance some modal shift um, and we do heavy freight, air, ocean, trucking, rail. Uh, so we do that component as well, but it depends on the product. Great. Can, uh, yeah, please can go I, ahead. Can I just, I just wanted to ask um, Roger, since first we're off, you, you mentioned hydrogen. Um, it comes up. I, can I, from, from where you sit, Roger, in, in the corporate world, can you just offer your assessment? Um, we have been researching through, a, we had just released a sustainable fuels report. Um, I think it was an end of August, uh, but we are, have been looking at any and all option. And I'll be honest that hydrogen is one of the tools that we've looked at, but we haven't really put all of our eggs in that basket because of uncertainties. But at this point, uh, it's a technology that, it, it, that merits research, but we haven't, we haven't made a commitment on any one alternative like hydrogen at this point. For heavy duty freight, you're talking about. For heavy I mean, duty, I think yeah. hydrogen, right, hydrogen right. will have Only for heavy, for heavy duty trucking and long haul right. trucking. Yeah, right. obviously for, for the smaller delivery vehicles, whether they be uh, our express division or other modes, um, they are absolutely uh, committed at this point to electricity as the, as the obvious choice. It's that heavier duty option where um, it, it can be hydrogen, it can be other alternative fuels. Uh, we just don't see electricity at this point um, yeah. serving in that long haul environment the same way we would want it to. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just pointing out, I think outside of maybe where DHL plays, the you know hydrogen will have important applications in other sectors like high temperature processing, heavy industry, things like that. But yeah. Um, okay, I don't see questions coming in from, uh, from, from Paul yet. So I will keep going unless I'm told to do otherwise. Um, and uh, I would be interested in hearing both of your thoughts. We've talked a lot about carbon pricing as a policy tool. Um, we talked a little bit about where government investments might be needed, uh, like a charging infrastructure. But, but if we do have a moment for significant government investment that is trying to do multiple things, make progress on the challenge of decarbonization, as well as meet the needs of economic recovery and this uh, economic hole that this horrible pandemic has kind of pushed us into, how would you think about what to prioritize in that space of, of government investment? Maybe Congressman, you could start. Uh, sure. Well, I I would um, I, I think I, I we could talk about investment. I think investment in infrastructure. There, there are different ways to, to look at this. Um, you, um, it we're trying to be obviously. Um, uh, it, it's not just an academic question, right? And so when we have conversations about how to uh, what we ought to be investing in. Um, it's a question about what we should be investing in and what can be done and what can be done right now. So we need to make significant investments in, in research and development and deployment of renewable technologies. And we have to do that in all sectors. I think we need to do it in transportation and 
there, we, there needs to be investment in sustainable uh, building practices. Um, we have to look at, at all sectors. Uh, I think we've got to, if we're going to move toward a zero carbon economy, which, uh, which obviously is the goal, um, we're, we're going to have to, as we make investments, we're going to, and, and given your reference to, we've been talking about this, the pandemic, uh, which has certainly elevated our attention on, on uh, disparities in our community, um, the, the environmental justice movement um, is real. And if we're, if we're going to be tackling climate change, the investments that we make have to protect families from increasing energy costs, um, but also have to ensure that everyone has the benefit of what we're trying to accomplish. It doesn't work to just make investments in one part of the economy if significant parts of the economy are, um, are significant parts of our country are living in conditions that, that are still a generation behind before we even get to the point of trying to move ahead toward, um, uh, toward uh, zero carbon emissions. Uh, the transportation sector obviously is, is the big one. We talked about that. We talked about passenger vehicles and we talked about trucks. Um, I, I think when we're investing in R&D and, and talking about um, how, to, how to reduce carbon emissions, I, we're, we've got to talk about investing in carbon capture also because this all, isn't all going to happen at one time. Uh, and then sustainable building codes and, and practices, um, again, is going to be a part of, I think, what we invest in, both from a research um, uh, perspective and then ultimately, how do we drive? The last thing I'll say on this: How do we, how do we drive some of this out there? I mean, I, I, um, uh, if we look at the experience of uh, of tax credit programs, um, not in the not in the energy area where they have been successful, but if you look, since we're talking, since I just mentioned uh, building codes, if you look at uh, tax credits that have led to the creation, the low-income housing tax credit, for example, led to the creation of, of um, uh, leads to the creation of thousands and thousands of units every year of low-income housing, uh, you realize that it's not just direct investment, but it's, it's tax expenditures as well that can help drive development, sustainable development, which will also play a significant role and which I don't think gets enough attention as we have these conversations. Great, thank you. Um, and, and just again, I'll remind people in the audience, if you have a question you wanna ask, just click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Roger. So uh, first, let me just point out, I think the, the Congressman just, when you talk about sustainable development, I remind everyone that you know we look at sustainable development, we're talking here about the climate side and the environmental side, but it's not really a sustainable environment if people don't have access to jobs, to healthcare systems and everything else. So when we talk about sustainable uh, goals. They, it's on the environmental, the social, and the economic sustainability. It has to meet the needs of people across the board, and that's where we're pleased to be engaged on that. Uh, as far as buildings, by the way, um, I think it's really an important point, and, and DHL's, uh, when we talk about improving our carbon efficiency, it's not just, again, about the, the transportation component of that. It's the entire cycle of our movement, and that includes our warehousing and logistics uh, operations, the, the, the physical infrastructure, as well as the, you know, fixed source versus mobile source. 
Um, and we've had a lot of really uh, successful improvements on our fixed source uh, emission. <clears throat> How do we reduce the energy consumption through the use of solar, through the use of sometimes uh, more um, transparent panels on the roof so that you allow sunlight through um, when you're talking about energy efficient lighting, uh, lights that turn off on their own. You know, you're trying to get the efficiencies out of that. Uh, I will point out, though, that at least on our express side, their operations are predominantly in the middle of the night because they're helping people make first morning deliveries. So the natural light is not as much of an attraction for them, um, which is where battery technology and solar power are helpful. Um, I, I think looking forward right now, I mean, DHL is sees the opportunity to make rapid changes in terms of uh, how the transportation sector at least is done. And some of those, as I mentioned at the beginning, some of those are uh, ready to do now. Building efficiency code, uh, building codes is something that we can work on now. They're gonna have to change over time and maybe it's a case where um, the pace of change in government is slower than the pace of change in industry. We are able to make these standards and these uh, changes. We work with uh, partners like Patagonia to make sure that all of our warehousing for them is LEED Platinum certified uh, because <clears throat> we want to make sure that they are efficient throughout their supply chain. Um, there are some like the electric vehicles where it's going to we can take quick steps with an incentive, um, and then there are some where, uh, as the as the Congressman rightly pointed out, it's going to take investments. In, in infrastructure, we talked about charging infrastructure, but I would say a broader infrastructure investment is also really important. Uh, in the end, if, I, if the truck itself is burning more fuel because it's stuck in congestion, it doesn't matter if it's more efficient when it's driving at speed because it's not driving at speed. Um, and I remember the, uh, it was a great example when, when Boeing released uh, the 787, they talked about how it could go from LA to the holding pattern around New York airports uh, an hour faster, but they couldn't guarantee when it would land. So the efficiency was really on air traffic control. Uh, the same is true for us. We can buy a more fuel efficient vehicle, but if the congestion that we're facing on the roads is bad enough, then we're not gonna get the full efficiencies out of that vehicle. And we're gonna end up having to limit how far we can use it or, or how many deliveries we can do on one charge, on one vehicle, et cetera. So I think, um, when it comes to federal government investments, if they have money to spend, uh, and, and I look forward to that day, um, it's going to have, it's going to have to be this mix of some investments in development of alternative fuels. It's going to be some quick steps like helping with build, uh, standards on, on buildings as well as incentives on vehicles, but it's also going to have to be looking at how the overall system works how efficient it is. Your, um, your focus is public policy in the Americas, but I'm just wondering, you know, obviously DHL works all over the world and I'm just wondering what you see, lessons learned, different models and things that are making, having an impact. Uh, we see the European Union, for example, put a lot more money in, in its public stimulus into, into green energy. Other countries, I mean, she just announced a 2060 net zero target. Other parts of the world have a much wrong, stronger role for the state in building the infrastructure and making, uh, is there any, talk about how you see this transition playing out in different parts of the world for a company like DHL. 
Well, I mean, our commitments and our goal is to do it globally. So we're not limited to the U.S. or to Europe or to Asia or anywhere else. Uh, we're, we're obviously looking on a, on a global basis. But you do have different levels of interest on the part of governments around the world in making commitments on this. And ironically enough, um, China might be the area where we have uh, trade wars and other concerns on uh, 5G technology. When it comes to environmental policy, they've taken a number of steps that were very supportive. Uh, we were actually manufacturing electric vehicles ourselves in China for our use in China because they created a system in which we were able to, to deploy that. Uh, and you mentioned Europe. Europe has a combination of investments and incentives on uh, electrification, but they've also uh, done some unique standards where uh, in very dense downtown portions, they're trying to take more cars off the road entirely. So there's far more public transportation for people, but there's also an allowance for uh, electric delivery vans to be into the city center, not just diesel powered. You know, right, we, right. we want to allow diesel. That, that incentivizes you if you want to make deliveries, you have to find alternatives. And so we use electric delivery vans. We use uh, cargo bikes. Uh, and the one I have behind me is a three-wheeled version. We have a four-wheeled QB cycle. It's a recumbent bike that's used. Uh, we have several, uh, I think five cities right now where that bike's being tested and used. Uh, and then we have actually um, human delivery where they're, they're using either a uh, robot that follows them carrying the parcels or they're just using parcel bags um, uh, or pedal bikes, but trying to take more um, right. other technologies that are not, that are, more energy efficient uh, and sometimes older technologies like bicycles and feet, but we're going to use all the tools possible because of the, of the city's restrictions. Let me, let me um, stop you there. Just we're out of time, but I'm also told now we have a question. So let's try to make it a, a, a 30 second question and a 60 second answer. And then we'll wrap up. Former Congressman Claudine Schneider has a quick question about the impact of outside support groups. Uh, Claudine, please go ahead and unmute your microphone and quickly ask your question as we wrap up. Thank you. I introduced the first Global Warming Prevention Act with 140 co-sponsors in 1989. Today, the Chamber of Commerce is the largest obstacle because they are also the largest contributor to the Republican Party. And by the way, I'm a Republican. So my question to the panelists is how are you going to go after the Chamber of Commerce to get the results that have been discussed this morning? Thank you oh, for that. I'll take, I'll take that one. Uh, just, uh, and I'll, I'll answer two ways. First, to respond to Claudine's question, um, I have made the point to company after company after company that it is all well and good for, uh, for corporate America, for good corporate citizens to do all of the sorts of things that Roger's talking about. It's great. And we ought to, and we work with those companies as they do that work. But to, to know that even as individual companies are doing uh, significant work to try to get us, uh, to, to help us combat climate change, uh, there are groups that they belong to, lobbying groups that they belong to that, that work to undermine our efforts to do that. And, and that's because not every, because there are some members of those groups um, who don't share the same commitment that Roger describes. And, and it's going to require some pressure 
I think, from the good corporate citizens to make sure that as we move forward, uh, they're not working at odds, that, that, they're actually getting, that, that they're actually getting the support from their lobbying groups uh, that they're a part of. Uh, and then I just wanted to say one more thing, uh, but I thought that was an important question. Uh, Jason, one last thing I, I wanna get back to. Everything that we're talking about here is in terms of what's happening around the world, our efforts to, uh, to, to try to uh, be a, a leader in the world as we're combating climate change, as we're, as, as we're trying to take advantage of the economic opportunities that it provides. Uh, every, literally every piece of this uh, is more difficult, if not impossible, if we choose, uh, obviously if we choose to do nothing, uh, but especially if we choose to remain on the sidelines. And the most significant thing that I think we could do in, uh, in a Biden administration is to reassert American leadership on the global stage that says, yes, we're committed to this. Yes, we're going to make investments that will, uh, that will advance the shared goals that we have around the world because these affect every part of the globe. Uh, and that we intend to be the leaders uh, on the economic opportunities that they will provide, because if we are, that's going to benefit the rest of the world as well. That, I think, is something you will hear in the very early moments of a Biden administration, and I think it will be beneficial to all of us. In the, very, least, I think that's politi very... in the least political way is how I say that. Yeah, well, no, I think that's um, I think that's well said. I don't know if moderator is supposed to be neutral, but I agree with that. So, Roger, please, uh, <laughs> closing, closing comment. Uh, well, uh, first of all, DHL uh, has been very clear, not only with the US Chamber and every other organization we're in, where we stand on the importance of addressing climate change. And uh, we have been honored to be involved in and, and be public about our support for the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, I was in Paris during the, the, the COP uh, uh, agreement and discussions. Um, and I think that as a company, we have, we have tried to uh, emphasize how this is not just a differentiator as us, between us and other companies as far as how we step forward, but it's also really a requirement that we all come together on, on something on climate change. Because if we don't, the, the consequences long-term are ones that uh, even the US Department of Defense has been very clear are not in the interest of the United States. And so we as a company have taken leadership in the industry. Uh, we are pleased to see other companies now making similar statements. Uh, and in some cases, and this is one of the greatest successes is when you get other companies to do even more, um, it's because they've, they've seen what we've done and they have to, to race out there and do more as well. I think the same is true with the United States. Uh, when we US takes leadership on this issue, uh, we'll see other countries stepping in to support that. And so um, good luck. Right. Well, thanks for this um, great conversation. Thanks again to FMC for the invitation to join. Roger, thanks to you and, and to DHL's leadership in this. Congressman, thanks for your leadership across the aisle, uh, trying to work across the aisle to make progress on, on climate legislation. And uh, as someone who spends my time trying to train the next generation of hopefully public policy leaders and teach them that there's importance in public service, which it seems to get increasingly challenging given some of the dysfunction in Washington. I uh, just want to thank everyone who's, who's on the line today, all the former members of Congress. Thank you for your service. Um, uh, I, I don't know if Paul has a closing comment, but uh, otherwise I will um, just say thank you all for joining this morning and um, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank, thank you. you.